Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 10. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Um, this passage in First Peter 2, I've taught, I don't know how many times over the years, it's become very important to me. And I wanted to share it with you today because there are some remarkable ideas in it. Um, the passage breaks down into two parts. The first part is the exhortation, or apparently the exhortation, at the uh, uh, beginning, verses two, 1, 2, and 3, and then the explanation of the, of the exhortation. Uh, Peter does things a little differently from Paul, and that's troubling to us because we're American evangelicals, and everybody in the Bible, every book of the Bible was written either by John or by Paul, and that's it. So... Paul wrote Romans and Ephesians and Isaiah and the Gospel of Matthew by Paul and so on. So everything we do, we define in terms of, Jan's going to be the one who will direct the laughter. So if you hear her laughing, you know I expect laughter. I can't give you a grade at the seminary. I would tell the students, to pass this course, you must laugh at the jokes. The jokes don't have to be funny. You just have to know I think they're funny and so I want laughter. So this... <laughs> Listen to Jan, she will guide you. Uh, <clears throat> um, Paul does things differently. He gives the groundwork for the application, and then he gives the massive or the major part of his application toward the end of the letter. Peter mixes it up, and so it's a little more interesting from Peter's point of view to, to look at things because it's not our normal pattern because we're used to reading Paul. So I have here in, in 2.1, as we read just a moment ago, so put away all malice. It is, it, it, there is a problem here. Uh, it, this looks like it's an exhortation to us, um, and that's what our translations do. Uh, but there is a growing body of scholarship that's saying, no, this is not an exhortation. It's a statement of fact. And I just, just paraphrase it, rephrase it, 
as saying, since you have put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes, now comes the exhortation in verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk. So this has already happened. You've already put away these things. Just a few words about verse 1, malice, you know. Uh, it's, it's anything that is self-destructive to a community. Uh, as, as one of the, the lexicons gives it, this evil is what is self-destructive to a community. Since you've put these things away, deceit is also given the, the phrase either cunning or treachery. Put away all cunning. You have put away all hypocrisy. And again, the lexicon gives an interesting um, gloss to this, pretentious piety. Uh, this, this word hypocrisy is used frequently in the Gospels with reference to the Pharisees who make a pretense at piety, but they have none. Uh, and envy and all slander. Since you have put all these things away, then there's a new exhortation for us. And we must become like babies. Paul uses the language of babies and milk. So does Peter. But they use them entirely different ways. For Paul, a baby is one who is spiritually immature. And milk is what you must feed uh, a baby. But strong food, solid food, is for the mature, Hebrews says. Uh, here, though, the, the idea is this. The one thing you must, you must give every bit of your desire to. And this, this word, um, desire, this, the genuine milk of the word, yes? You have something like desire in your text? Move your heads. Do you have desire? I, I, see, if, if you're not moving your heads, we may need to call somebody. So, so uh, desire, this is a word that would describe, and especially since we have the word infant here, um, it, it, this is the kind of word that would describe a baby, an infant who is panicking because of hunger. Are you with me? We, we ought to cultivate our hunger for the word to the point that we're like infants screaming for mama to come and give us what we must have to survive. The word of God must become the thing that is our our most longed for food, our most longed for nourishment. But why? Um, that you may grow up by it unto salvation. And it's interesting, Peter also has a different way of using the word salvation. For Peter, it's future. It's something you don't have yet. So, that you may grow by it unto salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, that's a strange statement, isn't it? I'm, I'm really hastening through this exhortation part because the key to the whole passage is in the next section. Um, what does it mean that you've tasted that the Lord is good? It's, some Psalm, it's from Psalm 34, and I'll just point out to you, if you'll turn to chapter 3 for just a second, we're not going to do anything in chapter 3 except point out a passage. In chapter 3, there is, there is a parenthesis in verses 10, 11, and 12, Peter quotes from Psalm 34 again. 
So Psalm 34 seems to be a bracket around the whole section from, from chapter, the early part of chapter 2 into the middle of chapter 3. So as you're reading 1, Timothy, 1 Peter 2 and 3, sometime go back and study Psalm 34. It's a thanksgiving psalm for someone, probably David, perhaps David, I should say. It's certainly a king, a king who has been in such danger that he had to cry out to God and God delivered him. And he's giving then a testimony to the people, calling them to trust God the same way. You go, this, this, in, in fact, in Psalm 34, uh, verse 8, uh, taste and see that the Lord is good, is an exhortation. You go try the Lord out in the midst of your troubles. You go see if the Lord will not be as good to you as he is to me. And the word that's translated good here is not the normal word or one of the normal words that we have in the New Testament for good, kalos, which in classical Greek meant beautiful, and then agathos, which means something like noble. This is a word krestos, which means useful, beneficial, that the Lord is beneficial. Uh, the psalm acknowledges, Psalm 34 does, acknowledges that the righteous face a lot of troubles in their life. But the Lord is beneficial, even in the midst of such times. So taste and see that the Lord is good. You have come to know him. You have had the milk of the word in the past and found it sweet, found it nourishing. But cultivate that. Never grow satisfied. Always be hungry. Always seeking an opportunity uh, to lay hold of the word of God and suckle at its wonderful breast. Verse 4 then starts on the groundwork. Why? What's going on here? Why does he give us this exhortation? Well, verse 3, verse uh, 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's really the heart of the passage that I want to talk to you about. This is a fascinating subject, and I can't even begin to address it uh, this morning in the time that we have together. But the ideas go all the way back to Genesis 28. You see, you know the story there. Jacob is at Bethel, and he sees the vision of God with the the, the ramp or the staircase reaching from heaven to earth, and God is at the top. Do you remember this? And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is part of a whole series of passages through the Bible, all the way to Revelation 21 and 22. Um, a whole series of passages that talk about the temple. Um, in fact, if, if we press it, this would take us all the way back to Genesis 2. Um, but Genesis 28 will be a good starting place. Bethel, do you know the meaning of the name Bethel? House of God. Are you with me? So, so Jacob says, this is, in, this is the gate of heaven. This is the house of God. Much going on there I can't spend time with. But Bethel 
for him as he sees the vision there is the point of communication between heaven and earth. God is standing at the top of the staircase as the angels ascend and descend. The angels are descending, carrying out, carrying missions uh, to, to carry out on the earth. And they're ascending to come back and give reports to the Lord on, on their activities. But he's the king. He is the ruler. And it is from his presence that life and blessing flow out to the earth. You have this imagery in, in Ezekiel 48. And indeed, in Psalm 46 and Psalm 48, much going on here. I wish we had time to talk about. Maybe sometime in the future we'll have such an opportunity. But the, but the, the, the point of this is, Jesus says in John chapter 1 to Nathaniel, uh, because I said, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You shall see greater things than these. You shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus is now the capital of the earth. He is the one who controls the destinies of the, of the nations. He is the one who is the point of communication between heaven and earth. Yes? So far you follow this? But Peter now extends that to us. We are the, the temple. And our title for our sermon this morning is the temple priesthood because Peter has a mixed metaphor in this passage. Let's look at it a little closer. Verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. If you're building a house with stones, what are you building? And the answer is, well, it should be fairly clear, you're building a house. In this context, it is a temple, yes? What's odd, especially in English, is not in Greek at all, but in English, living stone is what you have in a quarry before, it's, before the stone is cut out of the quarry. And then you cut it out and you put it into a building. For, for an English reader, it's not... This is not the meaning of the Greek. But for an English reader, we're reversing the process. We're taking stones that were dead and we're reuniting them with life. So there's not even need for mortar. We're being placed back into the source of life because Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the point of communication between heaven and earth. He is the source of life and blessing to all the earth. We're being joined to him, so we're being built up as a temple. But house can have a second meaning in English as in Greek, and that second meaning is dynasty. So reading on in verse 5, to be built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I got very interested in these ideas uh, 25 years ago and started researching them. I, I've done a little bit of study on it over the years. And there's a whole sacrificial ritual in the New Testament that we have fundamentally ignored. We know some of the verses, but we haven't paid attention to them. One that you would know, all of you would know, and perhaps would be a first verse on your mind when you think of this idea, is Romans 12, verse 1. 
I can only quote it in King James. I grew up with the King James, so please forgive me if you don't speak 1611 English. But I, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I just point out to you, see, see, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know. And one of the things I know is that chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, comes before chapter 12, verse 3. You no doubt see the insightfulness of that. So, but what is, well, that's certainly obvious. Did you intend it to be profound? Yes, I did. Verse 3 begins the, the, the passage that is going to identify three kinds of sacrifice you can make. Living sacrifice. And I point out the living sacrifice is more costly than a dead sacrifice. Because you can make a dead sacrifice only once. But a living sacrifice is going to take you all your life to do. So, what are the sacrifices just in Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15? Well, first, in verses 3 to 8, it's ministry by your spiritual gifting. Then in 12, 9 to 13, 10, it's loving people without play acting, without what we called here a pretense just a few minutes ago. There's a there's a section at the end of chapter 13 about the urgency of these things because the Lord's coming is near. And then in 14, 1 to 15, 13, the, the third kind of sacrifice is accepting people who differ with you over the way the Christian life ought to be lived. We're talking here not about things that are commanded nor prohibited. We're talking about things that are open to our discretion, whether you can eat meat or not. Are you with me here? And this, in Romans 14 and 15, it's not meat sacrificed to idols. It's just meat. That, that, the other is in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. This is Romans. We've got to lead, read Romans in its own context. So people who do, do, do things differently than you do in the spiritual life, things that are neither commanded nor prohibited, they're left to our discretion, learn to accept them. That's sacrificial. Everybody in here knows that love is a sacrifice. There, there is no easy love. Is that true? It's hard work at times. Um, at times, it's very painful, but it's sacrificial. And I suspect that the average ox being sacrificed didn't enjoy it. <laughs> would you agree? So, so that would suggest further that spiritual gifting isn't for you to enjoy at all. As you mature, you will learn to enjoy it, but that's not the point of spiritual gifting. Spiritual gifting is not for you yourself. Spiritual gifting is for the body of Christ. It's for the body to enjoy. Um, I'm going to tell, tell a secret here. The reason I went to Dallas Seminary, the human reason I went to Dallas Seminary is Ronnie Stevens. He's to blame and they haven't forgiven him. They talked actually in faculty meeting about withdrawing his, his master's degree at Dallas Seminary because he recommended me to the faculty. I didn't want to go to Dallas. 
Not then. I wanted to be involved in missions, and Jan did too. We were committed to that. We thought we were on our way. But the Lord jerked us by the wisdom of God, spoken by Ronnie Stevens, to me. I didn't like it when I heard it. When I told Jan, she said she didn't like it either. This is the place we need to go. And we went down there and and wondered for five years why I was there. Uh, Spiritual gifting is not for you to enjoy. It's for the body of Christ to enjoy. And if you're doing it for your enjoyment, that's 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. If you're doing it for your enjoyment, you are prostituting the gifts of God. You are here not for yourself. You're in this community. Not for yourself. You're in this community to foster the well-being of others. And that must be done, looking back at verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, because you have put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn babies, you are, you are longing for, frantic to get, this, the, uh, the um, pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow unto salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So we are a temple priesthood. We are a temple in that God dwells among us. He dwells within us. 1 Corinthians 3 calls the, the community a temple, and 1 Corinthians 6 calls your body a temple. Then, brothers and sisters, what, 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 what must that mean when we come together? What must that mean in our dealings with one another? I've been to the Temple Mount. I, I, I went to Israel five times, and I've been to the Temple Mount four of them. The, the one trip, we didn't go up. The, the, uh, the leader of that trip didn't want to go up on the Temple Mount, but I did uh, want to go. But the Temple Mount is one of the places, that's my, where my heart lies in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. I cannot wait for the Lord to be enthroned in the temple when he finally comes and brings justice to this earth. I long for that day. I'm reading through, I just finished Isaiah and I'm reading through Jeremiah. And as I read these things, I think, Lord, how long is it going to be? How much longer till you vindicate your son in the eyes of the world? Where's coming a day, he will sit on that temple mount. But as I come before you, I'm coming before the temple. As you enter this place, not this place, but the people who are sitting here, you're coming before the temple. And you're coming to priests. As I walked on the temple mount on those four occasions when I was there, all I could think was, the glory of God rested in the Holy of Holies in days past. What kind of place is this? How do you approach a place like this? And the high priest who was welcomed into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, how do you ever confront such a person? How do you ever talk to such a person? Does this make sense? But all of you are priests. Shouldn't say that. All of us are a priesthood. The Bible never calls any of us a priest. 
but it calls us a priesthood. That means I am not your priest and you individually are not my priest. It means that y'all, this is Memphis, I can say that, y'all are my priesthood. And so as I come before you, I must come with awe and treat you with dignity because of who you are in Christ. You're the temple priesthood. How else shall I treat you? In the day when Jesus is sitting on his throne in the temple, in the palace, and the word temple and palace are the same in Hebrew. I just, I just read one as opposed to the other depending on the who, what kind of person is in the building. So if it's a king, it's a, it's a temple, it's a, pre, it's a palace. If it's a god, it's a temple. But when the, when the one sitting on the throne there is the God-man, it's a temple priest, it's a temple palace. Yes? Yes? Yeah? You're not moving your heads. I'm going to have to call the, the medics here pretty soon. Uh, um, so we are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Go to the scriptures and find out what your sacrificial ritual is. You're a priesthood. Malachi chapter 1 um, God, through the prophet Malachi, chides the priests because they despise the table of the Lord, because they offer the lame and the blind on the altar. It's altogether possible for us to despise the table of the Lord, too, because I use my spiritual gifting for myself and not for the betterment of the body of Christ. It's altogether possible for me to squander my privilege in serving at, in the temple priesthood to despise the table of the Lord because I let those old attitudes, verse 1, malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, I let those back into my life. It's altogether possible for me to squander my sacrificial ministry because I'm not longing for the genuine milk of the word or spiritual milk as our translation reads. Like a newborn baby, I don't long for it. I, it's, not, it's not my craving and I'm not frantic to get back to it. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion. And here we've got quotations from three different verses in the Old Testament, Isaiah 28, 16, where there are the rulers of Israel are under condemnation because they have been seeking security in everything except the Lord. They've gone to Assyria for security. They've gone to Egypt for security. <laughs> and Isaiah taunts them. He quotes them tauntingly. We have made a, 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 a covenant with death. <laughs> That's no covenant. It's also a reference to Psalm 118 verse 22. In Psalm 118, 22, 
The king has been out to battle. He was nearly defeated, but he's coming back to the temple and uh, they're getting ready to go in. He's challenged by the, by the Levitical guy, a, a, a door, a doorkeeper at the temple. Uh, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous enter by it. And uh, the king's response uh, is to declare the saving work of God in his life, delivering him from death and battle, giving victory when there was almost defeat. So this... This is the stone that was rejected by the builders and has become the chief of the corner. And it's also a reference to Isaiah 8.14, where Isaiah is being encouraged by the Lord because people of his day are looking to everything else. They're looking to to, um, mediums and spiritists to get guidance. They're looking for guidance in everything else. And may I say, in our day, politics is the the idol of our day. There is no hope in the Democratic Party. And there is no hope in the Republican Party. I haven't decided whether I'm a Demopublican or a Republicrat. I'm still working on that. But there is no hope in politics. Politics is the art of compromise. And I can't compromise the things of the scriptures. I can't. Are you with me? If I put my hope in Congress, I will find despair. If I put my hope in the White House, I will find despair. I don't care who the person in office is, I will find despair. There is only one person in whom I can find hope. It's the king, not elected, but chosen. It's the king who is the God-man. It is the king who who is building us into a temple priesthood who's preparing us for service. And it is a service, one of the major themes of 1 Peter is suffering. Suffering is our lot. It is what we are set for. It's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. You know, famous verse in 2 Timothy 3. Yes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. You could quote that, can't you? Do you know verse 12? Yes, and everyone who will live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Shall suffer persecution. In Peter, in Paul, in James, in Revelation, in Hebrews, suffering is the means of our spiritual growth. One of the reasons that we don't grow as much as we could or should is number one, that we've been avoiding suffering, and number two, we don't willingly embrace it. But if spiritual gifting is for the body, it's not for you. It's costly, sacrificial, just to bring it to an end. So the honor is for you who believe, 
But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you're a chosen race. Exodus 19.6. We have all the privileges that were promised to Israel. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here is our marching order. More basic than the Great Commission. That you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, I can teach people rules and get them to obey without proclaiming the excellences of God. But I cannot disciple people without proclaiming the excellences of God. That's why I say that verse is more basic than the Great Commission. My task, brothers and sisters, I'm a temple, I'm part of the temple priesthood. My task is to proclaim the excellences of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. We are, Peter is written to Jewish people, but we are, some of us, Jewish Christians, most of us Gentile Christians. We were not a people. But God has done the unthinkable from the Old Testament point of view. He's made us the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but he has done the unthinkable from an Old Testament point of view. He's given mercy to us Gentiles. So go, live in the temple priesthood. Function in the temple priesthood. And take seriously the fact of verse 1, as we paraphrased it a while ago, having put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants, cultivate a frantic longing for the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word and the way it addresses us, encourage us, strengthen us for our work as the temple priesthood. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.